So, hi, Ken. What was your first computer? Uh, my first computer was a Commodore 64. Um, I think we probably got it around, might have been 83, but probably more like 84. Uh, and that was the first computer we ever had at the house. And uh, at the time, it was mostly just for like playing games and having fun. Uh, I guess you could say I got a little bit more serious with computers with the next one, which we got, which was a Commodore 128D, mm -hmm. which had a lot more functionality with it. Um, actual proper like five and a quarter discs and all that kind of stuff. And I think we probably got that maybe like 86-ish, something like that. And that's when I really started like playing around with uh, learning basic and things like that. The 128, it was the Commodore, which was, uh, how to, it was uh, a little bit longer, right? So it, it yeah, it was it was more like uh, what you would typically think of a desktop PC in terms of it had like the long front and it was yeah. a lot deeper than just. Whereas the sixty four was almost like just a big fat keyboard. Yeah, exactly. So I actually yeah. uh, forgot about that. So uh, for me, it was the Amiga five hundred, you know, the the next one. But this was something between. Yeah, we we looked at. Um, I think we looked at the Amigas, and because I was kind of interested in learning programming at the time, it was it felt like the one twenty eight D was a better option for that. Mm -hmm. But I, I knew a lot of people had Amigas as well. Why you were you became interested in programming? Uh, probably because of my father, in the sense that although he was a civil engineer and used to design dams and things like that, um, I think it was probably in the early eighties he switched over to their um, computer aided design division. So he was involved in that. So I distinctly remember in the 80s going to visit him in Sydney and he'd show me these like huge computing rooms that were like all closed off in glass and air conditioned and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it was probably through him and what he was doing that got me originally interested in programming. Okay. And uh, what was the idea? So you wanted to start programming in order to design a dam or what, what was the idea? Uh, so for me, uh, the one twenty eight D, I was I started playing around with trying to create a Star Wars game, ah. um, but obviously that was uh, rather tedious and having to draw each sprite and have it like yeah. the initial bit I was doing was like approaching the Death Star kind of thing, yeah. And it was like having to draw the sprite bigger and bigger and bigger. It was like very tedious uh, programming with BASIC, and I think after a while I gave up and uh, stopped trying to program with uh, in, at least games with BASIC anyway at the time. Were you somehow successful with the Dark Star? So were you actually, you saw something on the screen already or? Oh yeah, I, I could, I, I think I went through a phase of maybe having, maybe up to 10 seconds of like a dot on a screen and it would slowly get bigger as you went towards it. Um, and then I think I, I, I stopped at that point. I think something else must have grabbed my attention. <laughs> it's still remarkable. I mean, 10 seconds is already a lot of work, I would say. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of, um, ASCII art to uh, make that possible. <laughs> exactly. And uh, what was the next project? I don't know if I did anything else on the 128Ds at that time. Uh, what am I thinking? That was primary school. So, yeah, we didn't have computers at primary school, but I know in 88, uh, which was my first year of high school, uh, I bought myself my own first computer, which was uh, an XT from uh, Gateway. Um, oh, mm -hmm. And that had like, oh god, what did that have? That I think it had a twenty meg hard drive, and I think it was six forty k RAM, and uh, that was like a huge beast at the time. But uh, and it was great because my dad would bring uh, home all these uh, old software that they didn't need at work anymore. So he'd bring me like DBase four, 
uh, Lotus One, Two, Three, all this kind of stuff, so I could play with those at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he even brought me Delphi at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, play with that, yeah. Uh, the uh, Gateway brand was also available in Germany. I remember. So uh, you could okay. actually uh, buy uh, gateway computers in Germany. So I, I did do like a little bit in a niche, but uh, they were available. So you remember me about gate, gateway computer. And uh, what do you would what, what do you wanted to achieve with the computer? Uh, build a game again, or uh, at that time, I think it was mostly just exploring what I could do. And I was playing around at that time because I had it. I was playing around with databases and trying to understand those. Why? Um, I mean, why? Why? I why? Don't know. I think it was just because uh, Dad brought it home. I was like, "Oh, I'll play with this and try and learn some of it." And it, it's uh, it was interesting because at the time I would have been like uh, maybe thirteen, fourteen, something like that. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. And to be honest, I, like I I never got to the stage of like having uh, doing anything with the old board modems and things like that. Uh, at least that I recall. I may have had a modem at some point, but that might have been a couple of years later. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was it was mostly just to play around. Uh, occasionally, I'd play games on it, but it was mostly just to play around, try and get to understand things. Um, I certainly would never have classified myself, classified myself as a hacker in that sense. It was yeah. just kind of like playing around. But what do you store in the database? I'm trying to think. It might have been storing things like, oh, hang on. No, that was that was high. School. Yeah, it might have been. I because I know at one point in high school, I I think when we were using um, uh, micro bees in the computer lab in high school, I was trying to create a statistical uh, program for. Uh, let me try and remember. I think it was for baseball at the time. Uh, basically, capturing statistics and trying to do what we know today as like the whole uh, what do they call it, moneyball kind of situation of being able to look at statistics of players over previous years and judge oh. whether they're going to be good into the future. <laughs> I, I think I was trying to create something like that uh, back in oh god, what that would, that would have been about like eighty nine, ninety, something like that. Yeah, there was how BEA World. I think there was an old conference. And uh, BA World prior to Oracle World, and I was invited to the conference um, because I was BA technical director, which basically meant something like a Java champion for BA. And this is because yeah. I just use BA, and they just said, "Okay, now you are a director." And and then they invited me to the conference, and I, I delivered a talk. And after the conference, they uh, invited me to a game, and they say, "You have to come with us. It's lots of fun." And I think it was baseball, 49ers. I think it's baseball, right? Uh, uh, 49ers uh, is NFL. That's football. No, 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 no the football. This, then the, then uh, it was in the, in the stadium in, in San Francisco. It's outside. But it was the, the Giants. The Giants, exactly. The Giants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay, I never saw baseball, and everyone was excited. And, and something happens, you know. There was a, a short movement, and then spreadsheets, lots of statistics. It's like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? And, and, and I said, okay. And everyone was excited and a short movement. And again, you know, statistics. And uh, for me, it was even worse than soccer, you know. I don't like I'm from <laughs> Germany, but soccer is already boring. And I saw the, the, the baseball and I just watched. There, there was, uh, it was a never-ending game, the baseball with the spreadsheets. So <laughs> I believe, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess I, I hadn't really been exposed to baseball that much until I moved to the US like uh, 10 years ago um, or even actually probably a little before meeting my uh, now wife at the time 15 years ago but uh i've been to a few games at the red sox in boston and initially it was like all exciting it was great to be there and then it's like after a while 
few years later, it's kind of like, yeah, three, three and a half hours to watch a game. That's a lot of time when not a whole lot happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, so I've kind of drifted away from now. I'll check in occasionally and see what's going on. But yeah, it's, and particularly with, well, under normal circumstances, a season with like 180 odd games, that's a lot of three hour increments to lose to just watch baseball. Yeah, and they all, they always show these statistics, right? So there was like yeah. a spreadsheet and I had no, no idea. I tried to find out what it actually means and I had no idea. Now, um, you you create the uh, this stats game for baseball and... Uh, <laughs> And then what, what what happened then? Let me think. I, I don't know if I did a whole lot at, in the latter years of high school. I think I was. Where you went I to high school? In, London or where was it? Uh, no, I went to high school uh, in Sydney. Um, oh, you are from Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up there, uh, but my father's from London. Uh, but he okay. moved out to Australia when he was a kid. Um, but yeah, I, I grew, grew up in Sydney, and um, I, I left there in '99 is when I left and moved to Europe and started living over there and traveling around and working various places from there. Cool. Um, but after the stats game, uh, I, do? I, I don't have a strong recollection of anything that happened next for quite a while. And probably the last things I remember next are like what I did at like university. So okay. like learning, learning C++, um, doing... You studied computer modular. science? Yeah, well, it was a... It was my degree was kind of a hybrid. It was a bachelor of science, but it was majoring in information systems. Mm -hmm. So that meant I did a lot of businessy stuff, but also a lot of comp sci kind of stuff as well. So we had like C plus uh, plus, modular two. Okay. Uh, we had an assembly languages as well at one point, which was really mind bending. Uh, but then I also did things like uh, company law and business law and okay. uh, economics and all that kind of stuff. It was a very mixed degree. <laughs> And you enjoyed that? Uh, it was it was definitely interesting because it certainly gave me a good grounding in a lot of uh, the business side of things that is important, particularly uh, as doing consulting kind of stuff. Uh, it's important to know that kind of thing. So that was definitely very beneficial. Uh, part of sometimes it w I look back and think it would have been nice to do more on the comp sci side, uh, but. Uh, these days there's so much stuff available online that anything I didn't learn back then I can easily find resources to learn now yeah you say that but I uh, know you have to have the discipline to sit down and actually watch it well there is that too and there's certainly a prevalence of information overload to know what the right information is because there's so many different sources it, it can be challenging to find a good source on a particular topic this is why I enjoy the Java one so much because I force myself, you know, to stay entire day in the building and just watch talks. So I think yeah. that from the first one, I scheduled the entire day. It was like a marathon. So I think fourteen <laughs> hours a day, just uh, and it was completely energized after the week. And but you cannot do this online. I, I cannot imagine watching the entire day fourteen hours video. So it is impossible. Yeah, no, that, certainly with videos and with a lot of stuff moving to like virtual events these days, it's certainly a challenge. Because I know personally for myself, I can't just sit and watch seven, eight hours of videos yeah. of people presenting, uh, maybe two or three. And then at that point, it's like, yeah, I need to do something else. Yeah. Um, but that's certainly a challenge in this, these times. Yeah. So, okay. So you com studied computer science and you already did something with Java? Did yeah. You study? Uh, actually, uh, no, I don't think I did because uh, university for me would have been 94 through 96. And obviously Java came out in 95. Mm -hmm. so I don't think any of the courses would have been touching on that because it was so new. In the C++, I think I have vague recollections of uh, mentions of Java at that time, but I don't think we actually ever used it at university. Okay. Not so, that I can recall anyway. And anything mentionable with C++ you did? Well, C++ for me, it was it's interesting because it's like 
it's a really good language, mm -hmm. but it's it, I will say Java has some of these problems too, but it's really hard to trip yourself, or sorry, really easy to trip yourself up with uh, reference counting and, and pointers. And if you get that wrong, and that, that would constantly do my head in. It was one of those things of if I had it in my head, I needed to use it because mm -hmm. a few months later, I'd forget how it all works and have to relearn it again. Yeah. Uh, that was certainly a very big challenge with well, C and C++. Okay. And uh, with Java, so you started with Java, you, you like that? Immediately, or well, I taught myself Java. I think the first job I had in the UK, which would have been in '99, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that might have been the first time I played with it. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was obviously looking back on it now, compared to what we have these days, it's like wow. I don't know how I survived with that because there's so many things that have gotten so much better and easier over the years. But at the time, it was like, yeah, this is like fantastic. So much easier to use. And I, I hadn't prior to that. Because the first job I had out of uni, I should say, it was at uh, IBM, and uh, in Australia, in their what they called Global Services Australia. So it was like a like their consulting and service side of things, as opposed to uh, the hardware software side. Okay. And I started out doing things with like uh, PL1, JCL oh. programming, Kicks, uh, a lot of AIX stuff, and that was kind of like a an interesting introduction to the enterprise world, so to speak, after coming from university where you're doing sort of the more cooler, interesting things like C++, and then suddenly you're dealing with like 30-year-old languages. But uh, uh, so was, Kix and CTG, Common Transaction Gateway, they're actually not as bad, right? I mean, this is like... Uh, yeah, Kix wasn't too bad. Uh, we had a, a system called RCMS, which had like Kix screens and all this kind of stuff. It would go off and do things behind the scenes. That was pretty intense because I think that was that application, if I remember, had been written like maybe six or seven years before I started. And so it was like uh, adding bits to it here and there and fixing bugs. So it was a, a large piece of code to get to grips with. But uh, yeah, it was it was, it was a, a really good introduction uh, to work after university and uh, a good kind of stepping stone to stuff. Yeah, but uh, KIX stands for concurrent... Consumer information, concurrent system, something like this, right? This is something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a while since I've yeah, done, yeah. dealt with it, so I can't remember what it stands for. But it sounds like it's right. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I kind of worked at IBM for a couple of years, and then I decided to move to the UK. Mm -hmm. And my first job there uh, was at Friends Provident, which is an insurance company, and it was there that I kind of taught myself Java, and we started using. Uh, we wanted to write a new quotation engine, or sorry, have a whole quotation system, and we used Java to create that. So we did everything from scratch there, and I don't think anyone on the team had any prior Java knowledge. Okay. So we kind of all taught ourselves and helped each other out. But it was really cool because we had they had a previous quotation engine that was written in C++, mm -hmm. and they would package that as a DLL. So then we I created a JNI layer, to wrap the DLL so we then call it from the Java code. So that was certainly an interesting challenge to uh, do, given that I just basically taught myself Java, and here I am trying to understand JNI and mm -hmm. pass the right values back and forth and all that kind of stuff. But it was it was a lot of fun. Which Java version was it? You know what? I think it was one one point two. Okay. And what is quotation engine? What what is the purpose of a quotation? So engine? the quotation engine was basically a huge chunk of an algorithm that you could feed in. Uh, details of a person and it would spit out like this is how much we're going to charge you a month for life insurance kind of thing okay um, um 
So it's almost like AI, right? Now we would say it as uh, this is an AI, of course. Uh, probably, yeah. These days, yeah. But back then, it was just just Algorithm. an engine that you'd feed a bunch of variables in, and it would spit a number out, and that would be it. Mm -hmm. And was this project successful? Yeah, it was. It was the first time. I think it was even the first time Chris Provin had done any Java project, and it might have even been the first time they did some kind of web UI. I'm trying to remember. Did we use JSF? No. I don't think oh so. no no no! It would have been JSPs, I think, back then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we it was we had like a full web UI of like entering information and then calling down to the DLL to get the quotes and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was their first like basically web um, insurance quotation system that they developed. And maybe it was a Struts I, Struts one, I would suppose. You know, Struts because ooh. it was a mix of servers. Was the controller JSPs was the view. It was very common back then. Insurance companies and so they all use Struts. Now that you say that, it might have been struts. Very yeah, popular. but from what I remember, it was very successful and um, was continued to be used for long after that. And I think, I'm trying to remember, what did we use for that? We used Power Builder. Uh -huh. And uh, I think it was maybe even um, Ball and J Builder as well. Mm -hmm. I like J Builder. It was a great tool. And what yeah, I really I liked was the look and feel of JBuilder. It, it was like, you know, nice. Also, Visual Edge for Java from IBM also looked nice. Yes, yes. I, I do remember using that. I don't know if we used that at Friends Provident, but I do remember using that around that time. And yeah, it was a really nice uh, UI. Got a little heavy and slow after yeah, yeah, yeah. update, but uh, it was certainly a very nice UI. Actually, uh, all the IDEs had their own aesthetics, right? There was a, a semantic visual cafe, complete different look and feel. Then there was JBuilder, different with the JBCL. Visual Age was completely different to the, all, all the others. And uh, the uh, Sun Studio Workshop uh, was the, the worst from the UI perspective. <laughs> and uh, IntelliJ, it was not called Intelli, it was IDEA, JetBrains, I think. Yes. And it yeah, also looked then, nice yeah. back then, yeah. Yeah, IntelliJ's always looked nice or IDEA before that, but I'm trying to think, what are we... Are they still named IDEA? No, right? The IDEA, I think, is gone, I think. I think so, yeah. I think it's just IntelliJ now. Yeah. Okay, so what was the next project in Java? So I think that was kind of the main one I did at Prince Provident. After that, I joined... Um, I think I moved to Dublin after that, actually. Yeah. Wow. I moved to Dublin and worked for a, a software house there that focused on insurance software. Okay. And uh, their whole thing was in Java. So they had also had like quotation engines, web UIs. Uh, and, and there I, I was responsible for designing the integration with various backends for like getting, requesting blood work for insurance and okay. all this kind of stuff. And that was uh, XML APIs uh, okay. and uh, a large amount of XSLT. Oh, it would be prior to SOAP, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was a lot of XSLT and... Um, but you could actually this, nowadays uh, sell XSLT as a functional language, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, but back... Geez, I'm trying to think. That was, this would have been like 18, 19 years ago. And it was... Back then, XSLT was... It was insane. It was... Yeah. You know FOP. Some of the stuff I, FOP, FOP and Cocoon. Oh, right? yeah. Dealt with, dealt with FOP and... And Cocoon. Cocoon was the yeah. idea, Cocoon Apache Cocoon was the idea that you can actually create you know the entire portal with XML and XSLT. Yeah, thankfully I didn't have to deal with that a lot. FOP I did for some stuff. Um, PDF right, PDF rendering is a classic. Yeah, one. rendering PDFs. But uh, yeah, some of the XSLT I had to do was like a huge amount of recursion and using keys. Yeah, and we would have like three or four thousand line XSLT files to deal with the conversion between different formats for mm -hmm. what we store as data and what the external providers do, and each different provider had a different format. So it was it was probably the most I think it's the most complex XML interface I've ever had to deal with. But 
once I once it was there, the XSLT made it a lot easier. Yeah, and what I remember now with XSLT, a brief idea from the past, but what I remember is that the browsers were capable, if you specify the XSLT and XML, they were able to perform the transformation on the fly, right? Yes, I think they were. And I I'm think really I curious what that, that still works. It would be cool heck. If you sh sh <laughs> show something like this right now, everyone was really, it's like, why it's working? Because you, you could actually specify somehow this XSLT and the browser will render in browser from the XML, the page. I, I would have to try it out. So this is a... Yeah, I, I do vaguely recall doing that a few times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've got no idea if it works these days. What, what I do from time to time, you know, I still use you know, the, uh, the uh, marquee tag, still works. This is like... Ah, yeah, yeah. And everyone is like, hey, look, this marquee and it works. And this is like, you know, if you believe in web standards, it will work in 20 years as well. And everyone's, whoa. <laughs> uh, it's like, Blink doesn't work anymore, but uh, but marquee is still, still working. Okay, nice. Um, another quotation engine in Dublin. And, yeah. And uh, what what was your next, you know, mission? Uh, after there, uh, a couple of years there, I, I moved back to London and uh, found a job at uh, Lloyd's TSB, the bank there. Okay. And that's when I actually, no, I was working for a consultancy first, I tell a lie. Uh, I was working for a consultancy that started out with uh beyond like a, an integration thing kind of like tibco Cbeyond. Yeah. yeah 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 i remember this they had yeah. uh, they had uh integration broker i had to evaluate the Cbeyond e e-ways or something like this this was like a integration backend yeah yeah and we, what happens with them were they bought or they disappeared i, I have they to disappeared investigate because uh -huh. and this was like oh three and they hired a whole bunch of consultants this consultancy to thinking that CBON was going to be huge. They were going to get lots of business. They trained us all up for weeks on it. And then I think I sat on the bench for like months and months. Okay. And like only like a handful of us ever actually got on site anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then they retrained us all into Cordiant, which was a Java E-based um, CRM solution. What and is the name? Co Cordiant, do you say? Cordiant, yes. Uh, C-H-O-R-D-I-A-N-T. Okay. They were later bought by Pegasystems, maybe like 12 or 13 years ago. Okay. Um, so we, we started learning Cordiant, and that was like a bunch of EJBs and CMP beans and all this kind of stuff. And Still a CMP. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. So they trained us up on that, and we did some work for them there, and then I ended up joining Lloyd's TSB, and they had a huge Cordiant install there. So probably for the next like three or four years after that, I was doing a lot of contracting and consulting in Cordiant, either okay. in London or in Brussels or in Eindhoven as well. Wow. And then? Kind of all over the place for a while. Interesting. So then you got, you know, your Java E or J2E back then knowledge, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, J2E, yeah. And actually, so CMP that... worked somehow. So if you knew what you are doing, we actually built a large system with CMP. The only problem was it was a little bit, you know, chatty to develop. So there was the various deployment descriptors. So I yeah, tried to generate them with Xdoclet. Probably use Xdoclet as well, right? To generate the stuff. I think we did, yeah. And then from the Xdoclet, you know, this was like the doclets. They look like annotations and this how annotations happen so the first egp3 was actually actually the you know the java doc translated to annotations yeah so we we, we did a lot of that and that was uh at the bank there they used cordian and so i was also developing a lot of um systems web front ends and stuff at that time with jsf and everything to feed into cordian so mm -hmm. that was a lot of java and j2e and that was certainly a good experience working on various projects for the bank there okay let me think what next yeah what next for a few years, and I think then the next the big thing I did was I think I left them and worked for a company in London called the 
uh, see if I can remember the acronym MCPSPRS Alliance. Wow. Uh, basically, basically, their job was to collect uh, royalties from TV stations, radio stations for ah. any music that's used, okay. and then distributing to them to the um, artists and stuff like that. Oh, um, this is how Ro Rolling Stones happened, probably on YouTube, right? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah, and I, I'm trying to think. Did we they they might have used Coin as well, but then we also developed a whole bunch of systems with Java and J2EE, and we were we were. I remember I was kind of one of the leads there, and some a new system we built. We had this whole framework developed, and we had a whole bunch of aspect oriented programming, programming oh, pieces. Okay, to wrap stuff because we're like we don't trust the junior guys to do the right thing, so okay. we're gonna wrap their methods with all this other stuff. Uh, you are it. the guy who is uh, wrapping and interaction, so I know who to blame, you know. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you build, you know, the mappers, DTOs, aspects, you know, you used AOP, yeah. point yeah, that, cuts. That we, you know, we used a lot of AOP in that, that project. That was, it was fun to learn, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's powerful, but it can be dangerous at the same time. And, 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 and surprisingly, it just disappeared. Yeah. It's... No one talks about AOP anymore. And I, I remember back then there was even AOP Alliance, Who, uh, which try to know to, to yeah. promote their whole IOP idea, and for me it was always strange because I started with J2E from the beginning, and we always had you know AOP built in, you know the yeah. transactions and sessions and monitoring, everything was AOP, and the others yeah. didn't have that, and they they use AOP, you know, and I asked the AOP guys what are the killer use cases. I got the answer: transactions, logging, monitoring. Say so, okay, but we already have it, and and what's the point then of AOP? And they say, yeah, business cases. But then I say, okay, if you do business, if you find something from the business perspective, it's great. But there are not a lot of use cases, you know. Yeah, no, I think we had a lot of things like, as you say, logging, um, any kind of monitoring. I think we even did some business logic wrapping as well, just because the I can't remember exactly, but some of the methods we were like writing in our essentially controllers would have to do some boilerplate stuff. Yep. And it was like, rather than have the boilerplate in every method, we're just going to write an AOP to deal with it. Yep. Um, so it was convenient from that perspective, but it did make understanding the code uh, pretty complex uh, yep. because it wasn't all, all on one spot. Yeah, and uh, exactly. And uh, what I could uh, imagine back then is like historization. You know, if you call a method, you have to to, to create additional metadata, like you know, from when and so forth. That this could yeah. be, yeah. But uh, without annotations, it's hard because how to document the stuff in XML? You have to look always into places. Okay, nice. So, so you you created some you know frameworks which uh, I can cut yeah. out just you know for your for your CV. <laughs> and <laughs> what 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 happened after your framework time? Uh, then I I went back to Lloyd's, but. Uh, moved into kind of more enterprise architecture side of things. So it wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, hands-on coding. It was coming up with architectural plans for new projects, how they integrate with the existing projects in the bank and all that kind of stuff. UML? Uh, yeah, a lot of UML, a lot of design documents. Which year was even... it? Which year? Which way? I mean, now we have to be almost yesterday. <laughs> so you say a couple of oh, years, no, couple this of years? Is, this is... This is probably like uh, 05, 06, 07 okay. kind of time frame. Okay. And actually, it might have been 06, 07 uh, I'm up to now. And I think we even use like rational mod modeler to yeah. like model things and rational stuff like rows. that. Yeah, rational rows, yeah. And but one of the big things I was involved with there was when Lloyd's TSB bought Halifax. I was part of the group of enterprise architects that designed how to take the 34, three million customer bank accounts from Halifax and merge them into Lloyd's TSB. Okay. And that was like, I think, 18 months of like planning before like 
we actually had the cut over. But uh, I, I look back on that and still laugh that even in, in back then, it was oh, like 13, 14 years ago, the whole plan was basically a data dump and then someone would throw like tape drives in a van and drive from Halifax in the UK down to London to then okay. load them in. Yeah, now now it's called Amazon Snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> then you get the truck with a hard disk from Amazon, then you can move your data. So yeah, but uh, I still chuckle about that occasionally. But yeah, so and then after that, I um, there is actually a saying: never, never underestimate. You know the how it's called the not the bandwidth of a truck or something like this. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, exactly. And it was kind of surprising even for back then the amount of stuff that was very much manual and. Either and for the truck with the data, it was more a case of not necessarily being safer. It was more; it was just going to be faster, just because of the pipe they had going between Halifax and London yeah. and the yeah. amount of data. Yeah, it would take it way longer than just driving it out, which is funny. But and um, it worked out. So that oh you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in the truck or not? You or not? Or no, 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 no. no. Okay. I wasn't in the truck. <laughs> um, I, I'd actually. I think I, I left Lloyd's maybe a couple of months before the cutover actually happened because uh, I, I moved I moved back to Sydney at that point was working for an investment bank out there creating like a stock trading platform oh with with like J2EE doing like uh, complex event processing mm-hmm. I was using a ton of JBoss stuff back then um, CEP is the predecessor of Kafka you can call it right? yeah yeah basically yeah and and that was a lot of fun. Um, but our move to Australia only lasted like nine or ten months, and then we came back to the UK. Didn't didn't work out there. It was just uh, one of these like childhood dreams of remembering how great Sydney was, and then it's like, actually, you know what? I don't really like being so hot all the time. <laughs> this is what I wanted to ask you. So you you spent some time in London, in, in Sydney, and in Dublin, and which mm-hmm. uh, now in Boston, uh, which location do you, you like the most? It's tricky. I, I like I love London because mm-hmm. it's definitely very multicultural. It's got a lot of history there. And it's so easy to get around in terms of either walking or busing places or the tube. But I really loved like living in Brussels. It was that was a fantastic place. Um, obviously, the beer and waffles are amazing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there was just something about Brussels and being a little bit smaller than London, but still kind of that old historical like look to the place. And yeah, I really loved it. And why not Dublin? I didn't live in the center of Dublin, okay. so maybe that kind of colors my view. I was kind of um, maybe 40 minutes south of the center of Dublin. Okay. But D- Dublin is a great place to visit, but it's also, um, well, when I was there, it was very expensive to live okay. in the city. Okay, I understand. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, then um, two questions. The merger with the truck and the tapes, was it successful? So yes. were they able yes, to they migrate everything? Yeah, I, from, uh, I was involved in, in touch with the architects, yeah. head architect after the fact, and they said, yeah, it, it went off smoothly, uh, no no real issues. Uh, so that was really nice to hear. Yeah, interesting. Because uh, I'm, I'm really delighted because <laughs> my past, you know, I was always involved in task forces and projects which were not that, that successful. I was the <laughs> firefighter and I hear you and so everything went smoothly. It's okay, nice and <laughs> interesting actually. Well, yeah, it, it went smoothly, but it was also like 18 months or more of planning and... Yeah, but still, is I mean, waterfall I never had... works. In your case, it worked. You know, you, you planned for 18 months and then it worked. So it is amazing. Well, we also had, I think, three or four trial runs before the actual okay. day of like 
going through the ETL process and yeah. trying everything out and making sure there weren't any glitches. And there would be glitches in those, and then we'd work to improve the process to work uh, resolve them and make sure they didn't happen again. Okay. And the CAP stuff from Sydney with the uh, also worked. What you did, you know, was the uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, uh, I, my understanding is that that trading platform still used today. Wow. Yeah. Interesting story. So, what is your next successful project? Uh, after that. And we came back to London and I did some more work at Lloyd's for a little while before we moved here. And when I we moved to Boston, I was able to I actually started out in the consulting with Red Hat when I first started. How you found Red Hat? Yeah. I Red Hat was the first job when I moved to the US. And okay. um You wanted actually, to work with them or because of your JBoss past or it was just pure chance. Like okay. prior to prior to that, I'd actually like when when am I thinking? Like oh eight. Um, when I was working in London, I actually like paid out of my own pocket to go to JBoss World in Florida at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And like, I met Pete Muir and some of those guys back okay. then. But, and I think I'd started contributing to Seam 3, okay. um, prior to joining Red Hat, but it wasn't like a plan. It was just one of the people I was, companies I was looking at. Why you contributed to Seam? I mean, usually if you, you know how it happens, I mean, you had to. Well, I started. I started writing probably when when we were in Sydney on the side. I started using Seam 2 at the time mm -hmm. to write a DRM solution for mm -hmm. I think it was for weddings at the time because I'd been after getting married. I chatted like with our wedding photographer a lot, and he said like there's a huge gap in the market. So I started playing around with Seam 2 for that to okay. create something for that. It never came off because I just. It, the wedding planning side of things, after doing it once, it just wasn't enough of an interest to keep me interested in yeah. writing something that dealt with that all the time. And I can um, imagine this is really mission critical, right? If you mess yeah. up a wedding, I mean... <laughs> well, certainly, certainly for, well, the grooms, but certainly the brides are not going to be happy if you mess up their wedding. Yeah. Right, uh, so I started playing with Scene 2, and then when Scene 3 came along... Uh, I actually got involved in contributing to that, and I was—I think I, I was responsible for the internationalization module of Scene Three at the time. Or, or as a contributor, this, this was as an open source contributor. So okay. I was doing that while I was working at Lloyd's in London. But why? And I mean, I, I, can, I can imagine internationalization is not that interesting, right? I mean, not overly, but thankfully, uh, like James Perkins and David Lloyd had already done a bunch of stuff around JBoss logging, and we were mm -hmm. able to like piggyback the same kind of idea for seeing three uh, the okay. internationalization to basically use annotations on an interface and have it generate ah. all the different language versions. Okay, this is interesting, and uh, and it was just for fun, or I mean, what is your plan? I mean, do you have? To, uh, I think too I was. Much I think it, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I mean I think at that time I was still contemplating trying to do this wedding CRM ah, okay. planning thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was just at that time, Scene 2 had kind of been sunset and Scene 3 came around. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in helping out just to, I guess, get more familiar. So uh, getting to know like Lincoln Baxter the third and Pete. And I don't know if, don't think Gavin was involved in the project with Scene 3. He was focused on the CDI stuff. But yeah, it was mostly just for fun and to learn and to do I think that was like my first forays into open source. I don't know whether you had the chance to listen to the episode with Lincoln, and on, on, uh, I already interviewed him. No, I haven't yet. Yeah, you have to listen to it because <laughs> the Lincoln uh, he creates his own startup right now, and he yes. used Node.js no at the backend. And I say, hey, ah. you have to use Quarkus, and it was really, yeah, Quarkus really. And uh, we had a chat, and now he will try now <laughs> to have Quarkus because he found out that Node.js can have some pro performance problems. So let's see what happens. So you have to uh, ping Lincoln okay. again and say, hey, use Quarkus. Um, yeah, I'll have to get in touch with him. So and, and then so after you contribute. Probably what happened, Red Hat asked you know, uh, to uh, 
yeah, to join Red Hat, I guess. This is how they operate, Well, right? yeah, it, it was Red Hat was one of the people I was looking at when I first moved to the US, and it was on the consulting side. So I started there, and for the first nine to 12 months I was at Red Hat, I was consulting with Putnam Investments in Boston, uh, another investment company. Okay. And probably the main – it was kind of funny because I joined, like, the 6th of December. Um, so I'll be coming up on 10 years in a couple of months ah. at Red Hat. And – I joined and literally that week I was told that the consultant that was meant to be running the project was leaving Red Hat and okay. oh, I'd be running the project. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that was kind of a trial by fire. But uh, the, the main project there was like migrating 250 applications off of Oracle application server onto JBoss EAP5 at the time. That's interesting. Uh, was JBoss EAP5 JBoss 5? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Probably wasn't called EAP, EAP back then. It would have been just JBoss Five. Because JBoss yeah. Five was like uh, officially declared back, declared back then by Red Hat as not operational, right? Because they they had some severe problems. I think the uh, the idea was back then not to use JBoss uh, Five, rather than go straight to JBoss Six. Because I, I remember, and 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 I was with a product manager. Uh, with uh, from from JBoss back then, and it told me no JBoss five is you don't get any support because they have some problems, and then they fixed that in JBoss six, and then it was good again. Maybe it was JBoss oh, okay. EAP five, which probably was JBoss four or something like this, in because you know the something like this. Maybe yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it doesn't matter because JBoss five I remember vividly. You know, this JBoss five had some problems, and um, yeah. And it was also successful, I suppose. You migrated all yeah, the yeah, yeah. Uh, we <laughs> migrated the apps. Um, and it's, it's, it seems seems to be that when I've been consulting, things have gone pretty smoothly. It's when I've become an engineer that things get cancelled. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, then I'm now curious about your first uh, unsuccessful project. Okay, so uh, well, no, I guess unsuc- unsuccessful is the wrong term. Just maybe like mothballed, like because I joined Red Hat Engineering like after a year of being on consulting. Okay, and the first projects I worked on was uh, JBoss Portal, and I led the Portlet Bridge. Okay. which was the whole JSF to Portlet yeah. kind of mapping thing. Uh, and did that for a couple of years before J, uh, J-Bot, uh, Red Hat was like, okay, we're kind of mothballing portals. They're not the future. And so that kind of ended. Yeah. And then then uh, I, with Bob McWhorter, uh, founded a project called Live Oak, which was uh, a mobile backend as a service uh, okay. framework. Uh, it was what, was the name? what was the name of the project? Uh, Live Oak. Never heard about that. Uh-huh. Okay, I'll have to find that and send it to you. Um, yeah. It was really, it was, it was really cool and fun to play with. It was entirely built on Netty, and we basically had what we called resources, which was basically extension points, and you could convert anything into a URL path, whether it was like a file system, a database. You could then access all these things as a URL path, and then we oh. had like an. Ad- admin console that you could then install or remove these different extension points. It's similar to Slingshot. You remember Slingshot, Apache Slingshot? It was like a CMS, which is URI-based, as as I know. Okay, it's interesting. Uh Okay, yeah. So we did that for a couple of years, and then Red Hat bought FeedHenry, and obviously that was Node.js-based, and they weren't interested in Java, so that was the end of that project. Okay. And then then I did some developer tooling stuff with Pete Muir uh, for a while. And then, then shortly after that, Bob and I started Wildfly Swarm, and ah. that became Thorntail. So we had a uh, so discussion with uh, John, and uh, lately, I th- and I always say, okay, you probably hate me because uh, we met a couple of times, you know, at conferences, 
And yeah. you came to me and try, you know, to present me Whitefly Swarm, and I always said, you know, why are you doing this? I mean, Whitefly is just, you know, fine. It's just uh, small enough, and this is still my opinion. And I never understood what was the idea of Whitefly Swarm. Can, can, can you talk about it now, or is it uh, confidential? Or No, I, I don't think so. It's basically the main premises of Whitefly Swarm was to slim it down to only the bits you need. And the kind of crux of that is that with Wildfly... Although your application may only use certain bits, there's still a lot of stuff there that you may or may not need depending on, yeah. the, on the application. So the whole idea with Swarm, Wildfly Swarm was to be able to shrink that footprint down to reduce any kind of uh, problems or potential attack areas because your application doesn't need them. So like, if you're not using EJBs, you don't need to have EJBs there. If you're not using security because it's an entirely internal app, then you don't need all the security stuff there. So that was the kind of main premise was to be able to slim it down. And it just so happened that at the time, like, Uber jars were popular. So that's kind of the packaging approach we took for that yeah. as well. And uh, why I was so against that? Because I was in several Glassfish projects back then. And the clients ask me, you know, we don't need uh, JSF. Can, can you remove JSF for us or can you remove EJBs for us? And you could perfectly do this because there were OSGI bundles. It was yeah. enough to remove, you know, the bundle and it worked. And uh, I, I just played with it and I removed EJBs. And this was like, you know, I, I find out that an entire OSGI module for EJB was 600K kilobyte. I remember 671 kilobyte was in one point because <laughs> I, I, I thought it was much much larger. Then I removed yeah. something else. I removed all, almost everything, and there was almost no difference. It, it, it turned out that the server was were really optimized, and this was also my observation. Whitefly, if I I never, for instance, I, I tested in one point of time Whitefly full versus Whitefly web profile, and mm -hmm. the difference was a little. I said, okay, then come on, why I should you know create my own unique snowflake if I could just, you know, pick the stock Whitefly and be like all other projects. I was strictly against the uh, the uh, changes. And what really I didn't like at all was the way high, how um, Whitefly Swarm was marketed, like a right size these your right size your your services. And I say, but yeah. I mean, my services are not big. And it's not like Whitefly is huge. I mean, there's probably five megabyte of, of difference. And then, you know, the... The page where I had to choose: Would I like to have JaxRS or REST Easy with transactions, without transactions? Or I said, "Okay, come on, I, I I would like to have everything." And then and then and then later decide. And this is if you came to me at conference, I'll say, "Okay, what I can tell you?" I mean, this is this is completely pointless from the usability perspective, right? And then something interesting happened. Ratchet approached me, so I got a pink. So and we are working on a new runtime. So okay, again, probably you know, Whitefly Swarm three with I don't know, even I don't know something. And then uh, Quarkus came out, and I have to say, I was really surprised actually. So because uh, for me, it was not like trying you know to make something smaller because it can be. It was like rethinking how it should be. Yeah. And I never saw the idea actually. I have to admit. I never thought about that, that you uh, you don't need all the reflection. You can read the metadata and generate code. And as yeah. if I understood this, I said, this is genius because we can keep whatever we had, you know, and do something completely different. And I was Quarkus from day one. I think I wrote the very first article in Germany about Quarkus because someone asked me. And yeah. uh, and from then, for me, it was natural. Was, okay, Quarkus is a different beast. You know, I can still... And, and actually, migration to Quarkus was not a big deal. So I was actually uh, interested about your take. <clears throat> What was your opinion about Whitefly? You measured the difference between Whitefly and Swarm, or was it like you you were assigned to the Swarm project and you tried just to do as much as possible with Swarm without you know looking at Whitefly? Because you had also to recognize that there was not a much difference between Whitefly Swarm and and Whitefly, right? 
So I, I guess at the time there was uh, certainly an in interest in exploring like how Wildfly could be slimmed and whether it was feasible. Because when we first started Wildfly Swarm, we weren't even sure it would work. Like it, you could even do what we were thinking. We thought yeah. you should be able to because of JBoss modules, but we just didn't know like how easy it would be. So from that perspective, it was more an exploration and then it kind of became Wildfly Swarm. Uh, from a size perspective, yeah, it's probably not hugely different, but I know with Swarm, we were able to do some more interesting things in terms of being able to configure it with YAML in, and properties files oh. instead of like the server XML and things like that. Don't 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 say you. The next question is: You like YAML personally? To write YAML when, it, when it's when it's concise, but I, I don't necessarily like it when it's like 500, 600 lines long. That that's that's very hard to grok. Like uh, the Kubernetes YAML. It's very hard, and I've been bitten by indentation many times in the yeah. past, yeah. and it's, they're really hard to spot. But if you're talking like a YAML that's like 20 lines, then yeah. Yeah, no problem. But then we can go yeah. with Java properties. What's, what's the difference here, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And that's why uh, Wallplus will offer both. You could use, and, and do properties. I, I, and I have to admit, I wrote a lot of Kubernetes. Recently, I was able to add a config map to a template and a secret, and it worked immediately. So I was stunned. It's like the first, now I'm probably, I know, the senior uh, cloud native developer because I managed with Visual Studio Code without any help to intend, it, to intend it correctly. And I think I understand the arrays a little bit and the typing a little bit, but it's still, I, I st still don't get it, how YAML could become popular. I mean, yeah, I just, whatever we had, no, XML was chatty, but it, you could just write it and it worked, right? Or, or you got an error. Yeah, well, and and, and I guess properties the are also not bad. I mean, and 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 and, and YAML, okay. I mean, if if it is written to read, is okay, but yeah, well, but then, we cannot change that. Really Forget like, it. So, yeah. but <laughs> what I got, you could use, you know, for different things than YAML, but you could do something more interesting with uh, Swarm, which was not possible with Whitefly. What I yeah, liked with Swarm the most is Hollow Jar. Is I saw that it's like that is interesting because there's the stupid Uber jar I ne never got them. I say I, I, yeah. this is completely pointless. But the hollow jar is interesting because there was like almost like deployment. You have like like you know the uh, the swarm which is the base layer and you can yeah. have my jar and this is uh, was it your idea the hollow jar? I can't remember whether it was mine or Bob's or someone else's, but yeah, that that was uh, even with the popularity at the time of Uber jars, the hollow jar was. It may have even been John Klingens, actually, now that I think of it. Uh, but to be able to take something and actually have that Docker layer that can remain unchanged, yeah. really yeah. a huge push for why we wanted to do that. Yeah, perfect. So, And then it was renamed to Thorntail? Yeah. Why? There was a lot of confusion once it started becoming a product, Wildfly Swarm. Okay. That, that the Wildfly was a product. Wildfly, well, actually, no, it was even worse because you had Wildfly that was the community. You had JBoss EAP that was the product. And people were like, why is it not called JBoss EAP Swarm? Because you're like, it's Wildfly Swarming Community. Ah, okay. And it's Wildfly Community, but it's EAP and product, but you're calling it Wildfly Swarming Product. It's like, okay. that, was, that was, it was too confusing for people to kind of separate in their minds as to why it shouldn't be named the same way that Wildfly was. Uh, so we, and we kind of need to, needed to break the association with Wildfly to kind of have it be its own thing. And I thought it was uh, end of life because of, Quarkus, I guess, right? Yeah, so the community side for Thorntail is now end of life. Product-wise, it's still going for at least yeah. another six to nine months. But yeah, it's, it's all because of Quarkus. We kind of, the what we've done in Thorntail and the ideas we'd had around Thorntail future versions, because I'd actually been spending six months working on a V4 of Thorntail, 
which was a complete re- rewrite around CDI containers. Okay. That all fed into what Quarkus became. And then you kind of throw in the ahead of time compilation for Quarkus and the whole native image stuff. And it just became this huge thing that is like a fairly evolutionary leap forward from what we had in Thorntile. Evolutionary leap forward. This is perfect. This is exactly what it is. And uh, yeah. you started with Quarkus from day one? Yeah, I, I was part of the original uh-huh. group of like half dozen to dozen that were involved in the POC, mostly to make sure that what we did with Quarkus worked both from incorporating what we had in Thorntail and the lessons learned, but also from the Eclipse microprofile side. Okay. And what are you doing right now? What is your RES um, operation? So right now I'm focused on kind of figuring out a good architecture for Quarkus's observability stuff. Uh-huh. So part of that has been working with Aaron on adding the micrometer extension to Quarkus. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a lot of work with open telemetry right now as well to figure out how that can play with micrometer and give us a good metrics tracing solution for Quarkus and also then to feed that into Eclipse MicroProfile in the future. Oh, very good. Uh, because I had some arguments with the MicroProfile metrics on GitHub issues. And uh, <laughs> what, what I do with the metrics is um, I, uh, the, the, you know, the technical metrics are a little bit out of scope because they are just there and you can just use them. And because of my you know, background firefighting and problems in projects, I rely on the business metrics a little bit more. And what I wanted to suggest is... Um, custom scopes or how to call it you have the application scope you know yes. and this is my yeah. interesting part and i say why not have no application slash and i could define my own how to call it areas or scopes and and the feedback was they're thinking about removing the application i say come on uh, i mean this is uh this is would be a really bad idea to remove the application scope and the and they said okay because micrometer doesn't have the scopes i say hey, who cares about micrometer i mean whatever micrometer does and another guy how is it called uh, the from T- tommy tribe uh, he was in Tommy Tribe, and now he's no more. I, have, I forgot his name. I was... Oh, uh, Remain? Yes. Uh, and he also had uh, similar observations. And for me, it's, uh, the open telemetry is probably good for machines. So if you have Prometheus, it can just scrape everything and it's done. But we are actually using in projects the application scopes almost for humans because it's okay, there's no slash everything. is from the scraper. But if we go slash application something, we could have almost business metrics. And my idea is in projects uh, that um, we are building like more or less business components, which is a package with added value. Let's say we have, uh, uh, what is it? Quotes, right? So I have a quotes package. And uh, what I would do immediately, just introduce a counter, which just, you know, counts the quotes. And then this was my first thing to see whether it actually works. This was my first thing I'm doing. And then because quotes... You you build it uh, you you build that are somehow complex so mm-hmm. uh, there's an algorithm in, involved so I would expose let's say successful quotes and also successful quotes so I w- even on domain business level I would expose several counters but this only makes sense if I could create my own scope or or make it some you know some structure and if yeah. everything is flat then we need something else because then the entire metrics become useless for KPIs. Okay, that's uh, certainly good feedback because I know one of the main drivers for looking at Micrometer and including that in Quarkus is that it's heavily used in Spring and Spring Boot. It's heavily used in Micronaut. It's used in other Java frameworks and ecosystem and part of the ecosystem. And we felt that the way it handled metrics better aligned with how SREs are trying to view things than MP Metrics does today. I don't know off the top of my head how you could do something like you're talking about to be able to segregate metrics, but I know I know you can like use what Micrometer calls meter filters to say, I want to filter all these metrics with this information in them 
and send it to a particular registry. So you can create like a Prometheus registry that only has application metrics in it uh, so that you're not getting the fire hose of all the JVM stuff. It's not scope, it's registry type. This is what I wanted to have. Exactly, this is the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can do those things in Micrometer. It's kind of just done in a slightly different way. Exactly, because what uh, uh, I had a brief chat with Erin uh, yesterday, and and she said, okay, hopefully not with annotations, or we are just no um, the J4K. And uh, what developers, yeah, what the developers uh, uh, do in my projects, they annotate you know all the JAXORS resources with metered, and they are happy that they expose uh, uh, make the system more observable. And my point is, okay, we don't we don't have to do it because if we just you know parse the nginx log, we will probably see exactly the same information. So I don't do it at all. What's for me more interesting is the internal state of the system. And to give you an right. example, uh, in one project we use uh, GMS, and the uh, it could be Kafka, but it was GMS, and the we received the message. And if you have the asynchronous system with messages, it's of course interesting how many messages are uh, you know poisoned. So the type is not right, and uh, messages which were consumed, and there were no several states. And what I did immediately, I exposed that via counters. Yeah. And this is perfect, because then you only have to set alert you know, to a specific uh, registry and say, look, if we get any poison messages, just raise an alert. But if I get a firehose metrics, it, it is pointless. So I would say, regardless what Spring Boot is doing, uh, I, I don't care. What I would really like to have is like in my own area for business metrics, or we need another microprofile spec, which just does that, right? And for instance, I've, uh, what I do, I start with uh, counters and gauges. This is the golden thing. And with that, we can achieve 80%. And afterwards, we add meters and timed and, and simple timed, whatever. This comes, comes afterwards. I know uh, once we've kind of got some work done on uh, Quarkus and figured some of this out, we're going to be bringing it back to the microprofile community to talk about in detail because we're going to have a large discussion around MP metrics and what the future is. That's kind of been one of the issues to date is that a lot of the MP metrics was assuming that developers would have to essentially create framework metrics as opposed to just business metrics. Okay. So that's certainly something that the spec can look at is to move away from worrying about what happens in terms of like HTTP endpoint calls and things like that and saying that that's handled by Micrometer with their meter binders, if you use JAXRS exactly, or whatever exactly. it kind of comes with, yeah. and focus on a spec that's around how do you create business metrics yeah. and how and this to filter yeah. that. Perfect, because it's the same, you know, it's the same discussion I have about uh, service mesh, uh, Istio and service meshes. And I say, okay, yeah. default tolerance we don't need anymore because Istio can handle that. Okay, I would say uh, I don't believe that because this would uh, would be the same if we would say, you no, know, ten years ago we don't don't have to provide any monitoring, any robustness because uh, Apache already does that, you know, because uh, yeah. what Istio only sees is the outside traffic and not what's inside the application. So something like a circuit breaker, you can only do it regarding to traffic. What I can do inside the application, I have far more insight in which state my application is, and uh, Istio just cannot do this. And this is yeah, the same no, discussion, it, right? Oh, it's very similar, yeah. And I know that's a similar issue I've had uh, with Istio and service meshes is that, uh, granted, there are some things that like microprofile micro fault tolerance today can delegate to Istio for that kind of circuit breaking. Yeah. But things like fallbacks and other things like that, the, the, to do that, Istio just isn't either easy or really making sense because Istio is not going to know what a fallback should be via yeah. business method as to what should be returned. If exactly. You can't get a response. Exactly. So there, there needs to be coordination between the two to make sure that they're working together and you don't end up in a situation where you've got dual circuit breakers, for instance. You've got one in the app and one in Istio. So you end up with double delays or issues because yeah. they're both. And the next separately. thing is, 
how to test that, right? Because someone will have to configure the service mesh. Or who is in charge? Probably the developer. But uh, with you know everything included in micro profile or in my app, I can easily test it without even deploying to the Kubernetes. So yeah. uh, I mean, this is what's interesting because if uh, we get done double configuration, or you know, the Istio configuration and our application configuration, and there is almost like deployment of scripts twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the same problem. Everything is yeah. distributed. I mean, and yeah. uh, so this is why sometimes I wonder, you know, why what what problem does it solve and if i ask you know common question to me you know what's my opinion about service meshes and istios okay why you would like to know which problem do you have it's okay now i just wanted to chat with you about istios okay we can also chat about ice or beer or whatever right so (laughs) (laughs) but uh uh, for it there are some use cases like certificate certificate you know distribution perfect and uh but but for the circuit breakers i don't get it exactly the same like you know the firehose and and, uh, micrometer for technical stuff absolutely fine just do it but for business, we need something, you know, for that. And um, you said open telemetry. So uh, what I think would also happen is, in one point of time, CNCF, that the open tracing and uh, open metrics will merge, right? There's a lot of yes. talk about. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, so they're merging in open telemetry. Um, I think, I don't know if open tracing is still kind of doing releases. I think they might have stopped and focused on open telemetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, open census, I think, is more about the format. So that might still exist. But yeah, open telemetry is kind of bringing together the open tracing for tracing, the open census for metrics, and defining uh, semantic conventions for what the names of traces and attributes should be, what the names of metrics and oh, their label tags should be. So that, that's hopefully going to get a huge alignment across all languages. But then we will get in MicroProfile five or six, like a merge of two specs, right? Yeah, we, st- we still need to figure out how that's going to work because, yeah, obviously open telemetry includes metrics and tracing. So today we have MP metrics and MP tra- open tracing specs. Do we keep them separate and just adjust to what they're doing? Do we have like an MP okay. open, telemetry, open telemetry spec that combines them? Or do we just say that there are no specs for these things and it's this thing out here and use that API? There's lots okay. of different options. We just need to talk through it in the community. Because the open tracing is very thin one, right? This is just basically yeah. traced, and so it. I mean, yeah, you, this for MP open tracing, it's like one annotation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then just defining how it integrates with JaxRS and REST client and stuff like that. Actually, this is the one of the coolest spec: one annotation and the you no know, highest uh, amount of of advantage if you use it. Just yeah, and I think that's something in general that we need to think about at MicroProfile more is to be, I, I guess you could say, less heavy-handed in trying to define a whole bunch of stuff and try and keep things simple and focused on the how can we make this work in CDI kind of thing rather than a general let's boil the ocean kind of situation. What I also thought what could be helpful in uh, in uh, MicroProfile is like uh, logging, but not, you know, exaggerated logging. It's yeah. just, you know, take like a logger, uh, a view log levels and that's that's it because we, we we don't need a lot it's just system out print line is actually what happens at, at the end of the day and we only need some you know some log levels and then we could have aligned okay all the metrics are locked in i don't know in info level or whatever so some alignment with the other specs this could be helpful right now Quarkus does it actually a great job because regardless of what you are using, always the same happens. So I use the Java UT logging, prefer, and it yeah. works perfectly. And uh, this is uh, 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 really nice. Uh, now a little bit uh, heret- uh, problematic topic, let's say. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I-, I hear voices, you know, that the MicroProfile and Jakarta E have to be merged. I, I don't see the point. I, I mean, because uh, the CNCF, I-, I mean, all the specs, not, not everything, you know, uh, Open open API. I don't think it's CNCF. It's a standalone specification. But uh, what we talk about right now is 
is beyond the control of Java and application servers and application runtimes. It happens outside. And yeah. whatever they do, we have to align. And this is why MicroProfile has no shorter release cycles. And from my point of view, this Jakarta is, uh, is stable because, I mean, this is the same stability like uh, yesterday uh, I talked at the Eclipse booth a story that for me, the Jakarta E is more like an iPhone, right? So the first you know, two releases were very excited and everyone expected something else. But at one point of time, after 10 years, in the case of Jakarta E, 20 years, everything is already improved. So what I can expect, I cannot just know what, what to invent in CDI. It's, it's hard to, to improve CDI further. I mean, probably yeah. we will get you know, new features in Java SE. And then we can do something aligned, but it's not like I don't think we could. Of course, if we just invite you know all the people who are who are working with Jakarta E and say, okay, what we could really improve is really hard to find you know something revolutionary. Well, and I think the challenge for the Jakarta community as well is kind of figuring out what they want to do because obviously previously there was huge um, emphasis on backward compatibility, making sure things didn't break, and all these kind of very important things for large yeah. enterprise customers because they don't want to have to be rewriting their apps every two years. And the challenge is they want Jakarta to be like more cloud native and more focused in this respect, and it's the existing specifications weren't built and designed in a world where cloud native was a thing. So it kind of needs to figure out whether how much down that path it goes and how is it do it in terms of like is it rewriting all the existing specs to be more cloud native or uh, compatible with like native image and uh project Latin for the jdk and it's like that's a potentially a large amount of work to rewrite 20 or 30 specifications to take advantage of this kind of new world we're in these days and so from my perspective it kind of makes sense kind of have micro profile focus in that area but obviously, everyone has their own perspective and views as to where things should <laughs> <Yeah>. be. <laughs> uh, my perspective is a little bit different because MicroProfile already uses, you know, uh, a lot of Jakarta E. So w w what I always saying, I don't see the difference because uh, you know CDI, JSONB, JSONP, uh, JaxOS uh, come actually from from Java E. And if you would like to use uh, bin validation, WebSocket, servlets, it is also pulls from Jakarta E. And if you GMS is, I would say, still a thing. You know, MQTT, not everything is a Kafka. It's a completely different use case between uh, Kafka and GMS. So this could be a thing to, do to modernize GMS. But, uh, and what I would do in the case, if I had the only power, you know, the, the, the dictator, if I were the Jakarta dictator, I would try to remove as much as possible all the soap, all the stuff, you know, done. I would even remove, I really like EJBs, but with Quarkus, uh, they really, we, we could get rid of EJBs. What I would would really need to do is to have some pooling in place. Yeah. And I tell you a nice use case for pooling. So recently I created a, a, a online workshop uh, for MicroProfile and I wanted just to use MicroProfile things because it's okay, let's see. And I used the GraalVM for mm -hmm. JavaScript. And um, and this is a little bit heavy if GraalVM starts initially with the JavaScript stuff. And I use that for rendering. So I, I can use my JavaScript library, Mustache, for instance, and I can pull content with JSON and have no uh, in-place rendering. So I wanted to use that. I could use Mutiny, but I say, okay, Mutiny is just a uh, no, Quarkus invention and I would like to use something more, a little bit more standardized. So mm -hmm. back in the days with EJBs, what I used, I did the same with Nashorn. I just injected the Naso thing into EGB and this was done. So I had yeah. you know, five instances and it was perfect. And actually it solved all the problems because five instances, you know, you can access all the EGBs individually. There was no concurrent issues with uh, EGBs and with, uh, with sorry, with JavaScript. 
And uh, GraalVM has the same issues. You cannot just share, you know, the JavaScript space uh, around threads, across threads. So I would probably implement my either my own scope or something with CDI, but it doesn't come out of the box. So there are uh, lots of use cases. And if this is solved, if you get something like a pulled sca- uh, scope or something like this, yeah. uh, then we can actually remove EGBs completely, I would say. Yeah, well, I, and I think that's part of the problem that Jakarta has right now is it has a couple of different programming models. It has the EJB one, it has the CDI one. Mm-hmm. And it makes it confusing for anyone writing new stuff now as to what they should do. From like my understanding and chatting with the guys that work on CDI and Weld, it's CDI I think counts for like maybe ninety or ninety-five percent of what yeah. EGB offers. There's only very yes. small things that are actually yeah. missing, uh, and I don't think they're that difficult to potentially add to CDI. No. Uh, but yeah, it's it's certainly around the older technologies like so EJBs. They're the challenging ones because you know the enterprises still have them, still use them, and still need yeah. support for them. But so you, you know, can't the, get rid of them, but you don't want to advance them either. But the next version of Jakarta A just gets you know shipped without them. And if the enterprise would like keep with them, so they can just buy support from whatever. And, and, yeah. and I mean, there's not, not a problem. And uh, let's say we, so the, if I were the dictator, I would first remove everything and then merge everything to one platform. So we have like, you know, the base platform, which just comprises CDI, Jaxers, whatever, nicely mm-hmm. aligned. And the micro profile would be the next layer with the cloud native technologies or GraphQL, whatever is more volatile and not as stable. Because yeah. I consider Jakarta is like a boring operating system, like the Linux. It, does, it doesn't have to know to change every every month. It is like stable. Yeah. And the micro profile has to change. Otherwise, we have problem with CNCF, OpenAPI, and all the others, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And it, it, there's definitely very two different models there. And it's going to take both communities working together to come up with a solution. And certainly, as you said, uh, a a microprofile profile is uh, one possible option for Jakarta to have that as a layer that uh, fits in but is a faster-changing thing. Uh, yeah. I, I know I've also seen a lot of talk about desire to have Jakarta releases every 12 months or even more often than that. And personally, I feel like that's a bit dangerous because it gets away from the stability of Jakarta. Yeah. and you're going to find that vendors and customers are picking up every release because it's just changing too frequently if we get to that point. And, and feedback, uh, my feedback, because I spend most of my time in projects, is actually if uh, uh, I explain my clients, don't care about the difference between MicroProfile and Jakarta E, just use whatever is there. And all application servers or runtime support both. So you can yeah. actually you can download Whitefly, you have everything. So and just use it and no one has a problem with it. It's not yeah. like you to think the entire day, should we pick MicroProfile or Jakarta? No, everything is there. So I think there's yeah. no need. No no need to... You, you, you have the problem as a vendor, yeah. uh, as a user. <laughs> yeah, as a user, it's great because I can say, I, I, really, I came in in projects saying, look, if you, you know, if you are IBM shop, pick Open Liberty. If you like Glassfish, pick Payara. And uh, if you have completely new, try Quarkus or, or Helidon. And uh, and and I'm I'm out because I don't I'm not involved in politics. I don't have to convince which runtime to choose. They choose whatever they they they, they like to choose, and I just focus on my te- uh, technology on uh, on 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 the problem solving. And uh, this is actually great, right? Yeah, and and that was certainly one of the goals when MicroProfile was created was that it it wanted to do things faster than Java E had been doing things, but it also didn't want to like reinvent the wheel. So that's like why it's based on CDI JaxRS. Uh, JSON PNB. It's like we want to build extensions to some core pieces of the Jakarta programming model that we think fit cloud native and not create things that are like completely different and won't work with CDI or JAXRS. It's like we want yeah. to have that extension. So 
I think it fits naturally. It's just how to I think the challenge right now is Jakarta is kind of wanting to do a lot of the things that MicroProfile does today. So that presents a bit of a challenge in terms of the mindset and what Jakarta is trying to do and how it fits with the whole backward compatible non-breaking story. It's it's going to be an interesting challenge. And this is what I don't understand at all. I just was in the, the mailing list and I saw you know, the discussion around um, a config, whether mm -hmm. it's the config in MicroProfile and Jakarta E. And I say, okay, nice that you spend some, you know, uh, cycles about talking about that, but users don't care. Because uh, what I did at uh, uh, this week, there was a conference. I was invited to a conference. Uh, interesting story. And uh, as a uh, media partner, like a media partner, I'm not a publisher. And then uh, actually I, I, I searched for the conference and it turned out 2012, I delivered a talk and with, that, with the name uh, Java E, the future is now, but it's not evenly, distri evenly distributed yet. And what I found, what I found is the old source code. Oh, wow. It was eight years old. And what I did is I downloaded during the talk, or even yesterday at the Eclipse booth, I downloaded uh, Whitefly 21, 20.1, which was two days old, I think, JDK 15. And then I ported the application by you know, recompiling that, and it ran without any modification 20.1. And I did the micro profile thing. And yeah. uh, used MicroProfile configuration with that. So I extended the eight years old projects with MicroProfile and it just worked, you know. And, well, and, uh, and, I, and I, no, I, one, no one cares whether the you know, config comes now from Jakarta E, from Whitefly 20.1, or from MicroProfile. From user perspective, it doesn't matter. All the, as long as all the runtimes support both, we don't have that problem. And right yeah. now, in the lucky situation that all popular application servers and runtimes come with Jakarta in MicroProfile at once, which is great. Yeah, well, with, with Quarkus, we just need to say that it's like it's not all of Jakarta is there. Like obviously, EJBs is one thing that's definitely not there. But what we consider the core pieces of Jakarta for cloud native are certainly there. Quarkus is similar. Let's say Quarkus, you can, what I do is Quarkus, very similar advice. I think if you need something, look at SmallRai first, because this is like, you know, the MicroProfile. Yeah. Exceptionist REST client, you have to rename it. The REST yeah. client is the only thing which doesn't know, is named after small, right? So you have to know it, uh, the uh, Quarkus REST client. And then if you need to know undertow servlet, uh, yeah. then uh, then bin validation or WebSockets, and you get, you or GMS, I don't know GMS, I didn't use GMS. With, yeah, GMS is also available. I use it with, uh, not as extension, rather than as a library. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you have parts of Jakarta E in Quarkus. Yeah. It is not 100%. But it's ninety five percent or ninety percent. Well, we think it's kind of like the key use cases are covered. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Listen, uh, we are way over time. But what I really would like to do is to reinvite you back and talk about you know micro profile more in detail, and oh. uh, micrometer and all the stuff. And I have a little bit different opinion about uh, cloud native and Jakarta E. And the reason being is for me is Jakarta E also cloud native. It's not a, a lot different. Except you know you don't need a deployment model. But if you look at the specs, I mean they run everywhere in every Docker container. So I would like to talk more specifically about that. No time for now. Next okay. year, January or February would be really nice. Uh, and uh, it was really nice to talk with you right now. We have never yeah, time, no. you know, to talk at conference. So this yeah, was... no, and one of us is always rushing off to either another session or a yeah. presentation or something. But yeah, this has been fantastic. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. And uh, in the next few weeks, I will just publish that and then, you know, write a tweet about uh, next podcast. Definitely will. Thanks Thank very you. much, Adam.